Hello and welcome to Story Creatures, a Nashville podcast for artists and the stories they have to tell. From short stories and personal essays to poems and plays, we have a little bit of everything. I'm Madeline Hicks, local art maker and pie baker, and you are listening to episode three, Serendipity. We are now searchable on iTunes, so if you go to your little purple podcast app and search for Story Creatures, you can download and subscribe to Story Creatures and and keep up with episodes that way. We still have our Tumblr, storycreaturespodcast.tumblr.com, if you just want to keep in touch, stay updated on new episodes, or learn more about the artists. This episode features Heidi Irvin, Dejanae Cole, and myself, and... I know we're only on episode three, so maybe it's a little bit early, but I think this is maybe my favorite one so far, not because of me, but because of these two awesome ladies I have who um, really came through with some interesting things to share, and I just really like both of them. They just said they're very pleasant people, and I like what they do, and so it was really fun to talk to them and, and to have them share. Our first artist today is Heidi Irvin. She is a Nashville-based comedy writer, producer, and performer, and she is also the co-author and producer of Black Holler, a local feature film. It's a horror comedy, 80s style, and if you're in the film scene in Nashville or anywhere around it or your friend's cousin is around it, you probably know somebody who's worked on Black Holler or you've at least heard of it, and I have been kind of following it on and off, um, you know, via Facebook, and um, I had a friend that was in it, and so I've heard a little bit about it and uh, watched the trailer, and I'm really excited to see it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I was excited to talk to Heidi, and she shared some serendipitous moments through the filmmaking process with us. So here is Heidi talking about Black Holler. Serendipity. It's more than just a movie starring Kate Beckinsale and John Cusack. At least, that's what Wikipedia tells me. Wiki also tells me that serendipity means a fortunate happenstance or a pleasant surprise. As the co-creator, co-writer, producer, scheduling coordinator, fundraising campaign manager, casting director, incidental costume coordinator, scheduling coordinator, occasional assistant director, social media manager, and actor in upcoming indie feature film Black Holler, I can tell you that our Nashville-based horror comedy ran into many surprises along its way, some of which were pleasant. First off, I hope you didn't hear me list all of my roles in this production and think I was a total D-bag. You sexist jerk. Believe me, I would have loved to have had way less responsibility on this project, but it just didn't pan out that way. Maybe that's serendipitous, because I have a way bigger skill set thanks to this flick. And although I gained about 30 pounds last year due to stress and no time to take care of myself, I don't think I screwed anything in this production up too bad. Maybe one day somebody will want to pay me to do one of these jobs that I've been doing for free, but if they don't, I'm going to keep doing them. I think the most important thing for aspiring filmmakers or producers or band leaders, whatever you want to do, um, to do is just be prolific as hell and to push away negativity. Say yes to things that make you excited and that seem like they'll actually pan out. And when you're knee-deep in those projects, leave perfectionism aside and go with the flow. Pay attention to what's best for the project, because oftentimes it won't be what you initially had in mind for it. And done is better than good. I did not come up with done is better than good. I got that from Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic which is a very brilliant and uplifting book I read last year on my friend and frequent collaborator Sean Cornelius's recommendation. How did I read a book last year? I don't know. Okay, I digress. I don't know if all of the changes that we made to our original script for Black Holler will really be for the best, but I know that we had to make them. Anyone out there who has tried to produce their own play or film or put together a band knows that it's hard to frequently get the same people in the same room. We met this problem quite a lot in our seven-month production. No one expected this movie to take as long as it took to complete. Putting together a group of people with different schedules and the right costume with the right props and the right makeup surrounded by the right scenic elements was incredibly difficult, especially since no one was being paid. And most of the work happening behind the scenes 
was being done by a team of people with some with uh, of about three people <laughs> and addition additionally with some very gracious and talented day players coming and contributing to the crew whenever they could and sometimes when um we would get all of those elements together it would rain and we'd have to cancel it anyway Okay, let me get to how that could actually occasionally bring us to something serendipitous. One of our actors just kept getting these paying gigs out of town, and the actors who were supposed to be in scenes with him had conflicts of their own. This resulted in us having to push a pivotal death scene back multiple times until we ran out of summer and ran into the fall, and a lot of leaves on the ground. So we moved this death scene, which was supposed to take place outside of a broken down van, into a creepy old cabin instead. This, I think, was serendipitous. Even though the rainouts and flat tires that preceded it totally sucked, since we'd originally talked about the death scene taking place in a cabin, and uh, we had to scrap the idea because the cabin we knew about was too far away, we thought, let's put it in cabin. And we were able to find another one in um, Ashland City, actually. And uh, we were able to decorate it in a really creepy way with uh, uh, newspaper clippings about missing campers and pieces of folders and name tags from the characters, you know, scattered about. And it looked a lot cooler than just a spot outside a broken down van. Also, the owner of the cabin in real life let me shoot a gun on his property and I'd never shot a gun before. So, hey, I guess that was kind of a pleasant surprise, too. Um, the most interesting change we made to the script was also due to an actor not having time to do the part. And, um, we recast the role, actually, and the second actor was also too busy to do the part. So, one day, I was talking to our director about our problem, uh, our director's Jason Berg, um, and we were like, do we roll the dice on a third actor? And he said... So we cast a different guy to play him in every scene. And we laughed about that. He was kidding. But I went home and I talked to my brother and I thought about what that would actually be like. Um, you know, we do have a horror comedy. We make fun of the fact that we aren't always great at continuity. Um, and this way we could use both of the actors that we cast whom we both liked. So we thought about it, and then I had this idea for this great payoff. Um, so I can't tell you what it is right now because it's really cool, and I want you to see it for yourself at the Nashville Film Festival 2017, crossing my fingers for that. But anyways, I will tell you this. I talked to the team about the idea for casting the multiple actors and the payoff, uh, and we decided to go for it. So spoiler alert. This one I will give away right now. One of the main characters in Black Collar is played by multiple people. Like, a dozen. <laughs> same costume, same wig, uh, multiple actors, all playing the same person. And I won't know if this kooky yet original idea will really pay off in this serendipitous way on screen. But I do know that it really paid off on set. I mean... It was fun to have a fresh and funny and eager new actor each shoot. It really mixed things up on set, and it kept things very light and ridiculous, which was great for, I mean, the set of a comedy, which was all often kind of hard to be on. Um, by the way, I want to thank everyone who has ever contributed on this pro to this project, either on screen, behind the scenes, um, as one of our contributors, all of you were awesome, and I'm really, really grateful that you put your time and energy into this, especially everyone in the cast and crew. Thank you for spending the summer with Jason and Katie and all of us. Um, God, there were so many maybe not super pleasant but funny surprises. Just actors improvising funny lines because someone brought the wrong shirt to set or someone cutting their hair and us finding a really ridiculous wig to take its place or an actor dropping out and gaining a new actor who ended up bringing something really cool to the part or a man's swimsuit not working and him having to wear a woman's one piece. Yeah, it's going to be a really crazy movie and I think that it's because we embraced Things that could have been bad and claimed them in this serendipitous kind of way. I heard Julie Klossner, the writer and star of Difficult People, talk about how frustrated she was having to churn out several episodes under a tight deadline. 
when her producer Amy Poehler said to her, comedy never benefited from more time. I get what she means. I think the key to comedy is committing and just selling it. I wish we didn't need more time to make Black Holler, but making a movie for such a low budget can take a lot of time. Another thing we could really benefit from is more money, so if you'd like to contribute to Black Holler, you can find the little yellow donate button on our website, blackholler.com, which I also created. And your, your name will go in those credits. Same Kickstarter and Indiegogo prices will apply to all subsequent donations. And thanks for having me on your podcast, Maddie. When you gave me the homework assignment to write this thing about serendipity, I really, really dreaded doing it. But it's caused me to view all of our movies' mishaps in a positive light, and that's something I really needed to do. So thank you very much for this opportunity. I'd love to come back when Black Holler is wrapped, hopefully around Halloween. I definitely want to talk to you more about Black Holler and making it, but first of all, I kind of want to know how you originally like got into the arts. Oh, well, I guess I, I was in show choir in high school. Nice. <laughs> And then I, um, I became a theater major my sophomore year at MTSU. How did that happen? Well, I started off actually in mass comm, and I just didn't like it. And then I was an English and theater double major for most of the time I was at MTSU. Yeah. And then I just needed to, for it to be over, and I had yeah. more credits in theater. But, yeah, I, I, I don't regret uh, choosing theater. It was... I met a lot of wonderful people, and uh, I learned a little, too. Yeah. And so after college, what did you... Well, when I was in school, I uh, co-wrote uh, Underwear, the musical, Underwear Space Musical. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. Oh, yeah. That was me and uh, Brandon James Gwen, and so... The year after I graduated was 2007, and uh, and so we produced that, uh, finished it, and, and produced it at the studio theater yeah. in 2008. And then when uh, we had, uh, I guess, Jeff Gibson arranged for this New York, um, uh, I guess she was actually a music director of Jersey Boys, Deborah Barsha, and uh, she'd written... Um, uh, some of her own stuff too and she's a really great lady and she came as the one of our respondents and she just was like floored that these like two college students from Murfreesboro wrote this very very crazy musical yeah um and she was just like this is the perfect thing for Nash uh for New York Film Festival um, NYC Fringe Festival, excuse me. I don't know what I said. And so we, we, um, submitted it to the festival and we got in. And then I moved to New York whenever we made it to the festival. And we, we ran at, uh, Pace University. And I loved, I did the New York thing for a minute. I lived there for about a year. And, um, uh, it was a hard, I mean, like, it was 2008. So it was, like, not the best time to try to be, yeah. uh, to try to be uh, getting a producer interested in a musical, unfortunately. But I came back and um, moved to um, Clarksville and then Nashville after that. And I've been involved in um, in some, like, fil like short films mm -hmm. since and uh, with a couple local production companies and people and... Um, and, uh, Wonderwear came back at, to MTSU, actually, and then the American College Theater Festival in 2012, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I did a performance art group with, um, Sean Cornelius, who I mentioned earlier, called Storybook Heroine, and that was about, that was around 2014 when we were doing that, um. Did you guys perform at Women's Work? Yes. Okay, I saw that too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Cool, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I've been involved in stand-up for, I uh, guess, since I was 21. <laughs> Off and on, though. Yeah. Not really professionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that your, like, background in theater and with performing, like, influences you as a filmmaker? 
wow, I've never really thought of myself as a filmmaker. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. I, I think I write for actors, number yes. one. I think, like, if you're writing stuff that an actor can get excited to play, then you'll probably get people who will want to do it. <laughs> and work for free. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I mean, it's great when you have money, but that's not always the case. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I that's, like, maybe my strongest is, like, writing for another world, like, creating a world, and for, char- like, character development, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, making Black Holler, what do you think was the most um, difficult aspect of doing a feature as opposed to doing a short? Um, well... I'm glad now that we've done a feature just because it's it's just so big. And I think it made people really excited. Like, oh, I'm going to donate money to see this feature film being made. And I, I mean, I have done a lot of, followed through in a lot of big projects and like continuously have put together shows. And so I think people thought, I think they'll actually do it. Yeah. But it's been really hard. I And it would have been a lot easier to make a, a, a short just because we have a huge cast and, and pay attention to a lot of characters and seeing them through, whew, through a feature project. It just takes a lot of people's time. And, you know, I'd been, I have had productions and I normally can't pay people or pay them much but it's just like this will be short and sweet and you'll get to perform Mm -hmm. and it'll be a really unique experience and it'll be a good it'll be a good time you know and you can usually sell people on that but when you're like hey would you want to do that for seven months in addition to your full-time job or seven months and you're a freelancer and it's going to keep you from accepting work you know that's so much harder to ask for and and at times I'm just like, I'm sorry. I felt so bad that yeah. I was just like holding these people hostage. But I th- think, well, I hope in the end people will be really glad that they spent the time and and that they're going to be in a feature film. I mean, it's yeah. just, a, I don't know. There's a lot of like potential for a feature or just sound so like prestigious or something. Yeah. But who knows what will happen with it. What would you say if someone said, Heidi, I want to make a feature film? Mm. Would you have any words for them? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that I was really lucky to have all this happen. Maybe it was serendipitous. <laughs> because it's an interesting thing right now. There's, you know, all these uh, crowdfunding campaign mm-hmm. opportunities I hope it's not fizzling out. I do see people kind of complaining about it. Like, on social media, they're like, another one of these. But I'm like, I'm so grateful that that was around while I was. Because when we were putting together underwear, that didn't exist. We were begging family, you know. and uh, But, like, friends couldn't really donate $5. Or we really didn't have a way that was, like, they, they could easily do it. So I honestly think it's a very good time to make a feature film. If you're if you're not a millionaire already, you know, yeah, like, yeah. if you need to raise money, it's it's a good time to do it. I would say what do you want to make a movie about? Like this premise was a strong premise and we had a short film written that could easily be expanded and so it was like this is a feature you know we all believed it was like this is a feature yeah this is an hour and a half yeah yeah so um that's I guess like I think it's a good time for you to raise money and I think like you just need to make sure that your idea if it's best suited for this kind of way like would it be better to be a novel because it'll be easier to write a novel you just have to work around your own schedule yeah I also think it's a good time just as far as, like, accessibility to, like, equipment. Like, you can get a pretty nice camera and make it look, like, okay for not that much. I mean, compared to, like, 15 years ago. I mean, people make movies on their iPhones and, hey, they don't look so bad, you know? And I think it's a cool time with also YouTube happening. Yeah. Where, you know, and that's another thing, too, is, like, you could make a movie and 
and put it out as a web series, you know. Um, so I think it's a great time to do it. But I would just warn them about, I guess, <laughs> then uh, how big their cast is and maybe not set it in another time period. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, what are you working on next? Like, what's next for you on the horizon? Well, I can't really say that. I, I, um, when I was putting together, like, my news resolutions or whatever, and I do it, like, as kind of just goals, my number one goal is to finish Black Holler. I mean, we're still in post-production, and we still have to shoot some pickups, and for me to kind of dive into something else right now, I just think it'd be really dangerous, because it's still kind of murky that, you know, I still have to do, follow through on a lot for it to be finished and and then once it's finished I I need to make sure we're putting it in the right festivals and like once that happens it's you know distribution and and that's a lot yeah (laughs) so I'm really interested in like if other people have projects and they um need some assistance I want to help but I can't really take anything else on from myself like right. to, I don't want to be the leader on anything for a little while <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I would help with um like producing or like assisting someone with like writing or acting I would love to just be a part of something and not be a lot of parts of something yeah <laughs> just come in do the fun thing get it done go yeah, home <laughs> that sounds fun that's nice too mm-hmm. <laughs> all right well thank you so much thank you Alright, this next essay is actually by me, Story Creatures host Madeline Hicks. I'm not going to introduce myself because that would be super weird, but I will mention a couple of projects I have coming up. My short film, Snow Globes, that I made last summer is premiering at the Chattanooga Film Festival this year, and I'm so thankful for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. And then I'm also performing my one-person show, Paper Dreams, as a part of, it's called Exchange. So basically a group of artists from Chicago come to Nashville and share their work and then a group of artists in Nashville go to Chicago so that's going to be a cool opportunity to meet other artists and hang out and see their work so that's coming up looking forward to that but anyway here is an essay that I wrote about the mysterious chicken Hattie and I titled it when life gives you chickens sometimes when you meet someone's parents for the first time you find yourself completely and totally confused You wonder how this particular human being came from those particular human beings. You imagine a spaceship landing on Earth to drop them off, because there is no other rational explanation. Other times, and more often in my experience, when you meet someone's parents for the first time, everything makes more sense. I am one of those people. My mother would never dream of hosting a party without emptying every single trash can in the house first, and my father drives fast without a seatbelt. As a result, I am organized chaos. I am a perfectionist who likes asymmetry, an introvert who participates in the performing arts. I load the dishwasher in a very specific way, but I let the dirty clothes pile up into a mountain almost as tall as I am. I am as gentle and thoughtful as I am strong-willed and resilient. I am a hardcore planner with a spontaneous streak. For as long as I can remember, I have found comfort and predictability. I like flipping through the pages of my calendar and considering the outcomes of various conversations, working through potential difficulties and uncertainties in my head, and solving imaginary problems. And although this part of my personality can be beneficial, it can also be detrimental. Sometimes I hold tight to my expectations and lose the unpredictable wonders in life. This is why the first time I heard the word serendipity, I clung to it. I'm a firm believer that certain words, just like people and places, stick. We hold on to them because some part of us needs them. Serendipity is one of those words for me. I like the way it feels in my mouth when I say it. I like the way it sounds like a song. And I like the reminder that sometimes the greatest things in life are the things we have no idea we want or need. 
Most of the best things for me have been serendipitous in nature. Relationships, friends, bunt cakes, and most recently, a chicken. Friday afternoons, I usually get off work early. This has always been one of my favorite times. Sometimes I shop for things I don't need and won't buy. Sometimes I people watch at coffee shops. And sometimes I partake in the trashy television that my boyfriend finds distasteful. Which it is. And last Friday afternoon was no exception. I was sprawled out on the couch, sun rays peeking in through the window, gently warming my face and half asleep. When I heard a shuffling sound at the door, I perked up. I looked through the peephole, but I saw nothing. I then timidly peered out the front window, but could see no one at my door, in my yard, in the driveway, or even on the street. I then carefully cracked open my front door. Standing there, on my front steps, in all of her feathered glory, was a chicken. We looked at each other in what I can only describe as mutual surprise, and then she promptly began strutting towards the door like a rude, unexpected house guest inviting herself in. I quickly closed the door and took a moment to assess the situation. I decided to put my intensely interested cat in the guest room so I could go outside and explore the situation further. Not sure what I was planning to do. Maybe a part of me hoped the chicken would explain itself or apologize for the interruption and head home. But when I opened the door again, the chicken was gone. I scanned the front yard, the driveway, and even looked around the side of my house, but there was no chicken to be seen. As unusual as the situation was, I didn't think much of it. After all, I live in East Nashville. I've seen some weird shit. So it didn't cross my mind again until Sunday morning. Saturday night, it rained hard. So as I was drowsily getting dressed on Sunday, I wondered whether or not I need to wear my rain boots. I pulled back the curtain on my bedroom window and as soon as I did, I saw it, the chicken. She's standing in my front yard, looking towards the window as if she was expecting to see me. After an unusually long stare down, she begins making a beeline for the front door. At this point, it was glaringly obvious that not only was this chicken resolved to show up at my door until I let her in, but that this was somehow personal. I wasn't sure, and will never know, why this chicken focused in on my house. I think maybe deep down, she knew that if she was persistent enough, she would get in. If a chicken shows up at your house once, he may politely decline. But if a chicken shows up at your house twice, you better invite that chicken in for tea. And so, quickly and unexpectedly, I found myself sitting in the basement with a chicken I named Hattie. Hattie was beautiful. She had black feathers with white polka dots, a narrow red face, and small black eyes. I was surprised at how relatively laid back she was. She let me hold her, pet her, and seemed content to stare blankly ahead, nap, and snack on granola. Is there a better example of serendipity than a snuggly, sleepy chicken in your basement? As much as I was simultaneously confused and amused at this farm animal residing in my home, I knew that this arrangement couldn't be permanent. Despite growing up in the South, I never cared for a chicken in my life, and I wasn't equipped to create a comfortable environment for Hattie long term. I considered myself more of a bed and breakfast for persistent chickens. I posted on neighborhood and lost and found Facebook pages, as well as putting posters on the street by my house. Found chicken, black with white spots. Call for more information. After a few hours of no response, I started seeking alternatives for Hattie. If I had it my way, I'd just send her off to Yale to study creative writing, but I'd settle for a loving home with other birds. Hattie soon had some viable options. The agriculture teacher at McGavick High School agreed to take her in, as well as a couple in East Nashville who found the picture online and offered to help. But later that night, the owner finally got in touch. Apparently, Hattie wandered out when her coop was accidentally left open, alongside six of her sister-wife friends. One of the chickens returned home the next day, but the other five were assumed dead or too far lost. 
I realized after hearing that that Hattie survived four days on her own in 25 degree weather with hardly any food or water. Not to mention, my neighborhood is known for having coyotes, foxes, and the occasional stray dog. Wow. This chicken already had my love, but damn it, now she had my respect. She was returned home safely to a house less than a mile away from mine, and I'd be lying if I said it wasn't bittersweet. But Hattie was a much-needed, serendipitous, feathery reminder that sometimes the greatest things in life show up on our doorstep and we'll never know unless we let them in. Our last piece is by Dejanae Cole. She recently moved to Nashville from California and she spends her time working with kids, hula hooping and blogging. So what's not to like there? She told me about her blog a while back and it's still fairly new, but she was telling me how when she lost her mother and she was grieving, she would share stories about it. And a lot of people were really surprised with how open she was about it. And I think some people were probably relieved because they had some of the same feelings, but they didn't know how to really communicate it or to share it or connect with other people. And I thought that there was something really beautiful and serendipitous about making those unexpected connections and sharing your story and your struggle and finding some little bit of comfort there, even in the worst of times. Here is Dejanae Cole reading from her blog, Blue Bicycle, Grief, Suicide, Oprah, Part 1. Roller coasters, those really big, shiny, curvy, and loopy things that seem to be fun and enjoyable to so many people, I do absolutely whatever I can to avoid them. Let me paint a quick picture for you to help you understand. It goes like this. I have no desire to get on the roller coaster. The people I'm with always want to get on the roller coaster. I ask myself, why did I come to the amusement park? My friends use their persuasive tactics and convince me to get on the roller coaster. I'm extremely hesitant to get on the ride, but eventually I end up getting on the ride. The workers lock me in on the ride. I'm terrified while my friends look so thrilled. I don't like them in that moment. The ride starts and we slowly begin to go up. I realize that I am now stuck on this ride for good and there is no turning back. I instinctively begin to pray like my life depends on it because I really believe this will be my last ride because I feel like I'm going to die. I pray out loud with some screams between prayers. During this time, the people I know and people I don't know on the ride are now laughing at me. So glad they were able to be amused at the amusement park. We get off the ride and I know that my prayers have worked because my feet have safely landed on the ground. This is what it's like for me to ride on a roller coaster, which is why I don't get on them much. However, the roller coaster that I have found that cannot be avoided is the roller coaster called life. When this discovery was made, there went my big safe bubble of what I thought life could be, completely busted. Because who can avoid life and really live? Now you would think, well, at least I thought, that this God who I spent so much time praying to while on these physical roller coasters would know better than to give me a life in roller coaster form. Like I would have been cool with the little teacup ride version of life. You know, the life without the loops, drops, and terrifying moments in between. Yeah, that version of life would have sufficed for me. Safe, simple, and predictable. All those things sounded good to me and really was something I thought would be better for me until I realized that this type of life is one motivated by fear and to live a life of fear is to live a hindered life. Or should I say, it is to merely exist but never fully live. I wanted to live. I have always had a passion for life, a deep desire to learn and the drive to go after my dreams. Living and really meaning it and being purposeful with my life seemed to come natural to me and I had no clue why people would not want to live out their full purpose. It bothered me to see people waste their life on meaningless things or engage in reckless lifestyles because it takes away from who that person was made to be. But then the merciless monster of grief rudely barged into my life and then I understood how someone couldn't care less about their life. Grief connected it all for me and painted a whole new picture for me. It was an ugly picture, but a clear one. 
one of the things that I like to do for fun is look up words in the dictionary just to get a fuller meaning. So in the beginning stages of my grieving, I was compelled to look up the word grief one day. I can't say for sure if it was the best idea. It's described as a deep sadness, suffering, and several other painfully miserable words. So basically how I translated the definition was, it's going to hurt. You are going to feel pain in a way you didn't know was possible. It's not enjoyable. You will suffer. In fact, you will suffer forever. Pain is your closest companion. Pain will make sure you hurt really bad. This is going to be scary. Pain, pain, pain. Pain, you know, that thing that we have all been affected by in some way or another, yet most of us run from it. Pain is something that we all know of, but only few really know pain in its fullness. I'll elaborate because I know it probably sounds a little weird. This is what I believe now. Knowing pain partially has to do with what caused pain, but the fullness of knowing pain has to do with how you deal with the pain that has been caused. If we all truly allowed ourselves to know pain, we would find that it is nothing we need to avoid or submit in fear to. We wouldn't run from pain because we don't run from things we aren't fearful of. To really know pain is to know what pain can do for you and not just know what pain can reduce you to. Simply put, pain can either be our launching pad or our place of captivity. My grief was birthed when I lost the woman who gave me life. My mom was more than a mom to me. She displayed motherhood in a beautiful way, and that drew me into wanting to be her friend. My mom was very responsible, but I never felt like she did things for me or my two older brothers out of obligation. She did things for us out of love, deep love. She viewed children as gifts, not burdens, and I believe that is what made a world a difference in the way that she mothered us. There was so much to her as a woman and to only limit our relationship to a mother and daughter relationship would have robbed me of the gift of her friendship. I enjoyed spending time with my mom and talking with her and I talked to her every day, even when I went away to college. During our time together and our countless conversations, she taught me, comforted me, corrected me, encouraged me, laughed with me, guided me, supported me, protected me, and she released me when I wanted to go after my dreams and go on my own journey. Because in the lovely words of Maya Angelou, love doesn't only hold on, it also liberates. The love that my mom showed me and so many others is why I call her legendary lover. With that said, I am not just grieving the loss of my mom, I'm grieving the loss of my mentor, my hero, my biggest fan, my laughing buddy, and my best friend. With this depth of loss, I have suffered a pain that was completely foreign to me. When my mom passed away last September, I had to make a hard choice daily, multiple times a day, and it was this. Am I going to allow myself to really grieve or am I going to distract myself? The pain of loss was something that intimidated me at first, but then I lost it too much to care to keep it together. So most of the time I think I chose to grieve and other times there was no pretending I could do that would help me keep it together. I could not tell my real life from my dream life, but it did not really matter because both terrified me in different ways. When I went to sleep, I would lay down knowing that my mom had died, but then I would wake up in the morning believing she was still here, especially when I would dream of her. I would wake up with a wave of different emotions only for it to end in heartache. When I would realize she was gone, it would brutally snap me back into reality, but it was still something that I could not fully fathom, which made me feel like I was more in a twilight zone. Nothing feels right when you are grieving. Everything just feels off. When you feel off, you do some things that are just kind of off. I remember calling her cell phone, part of me knowing she wasn't ever going to answer again, but the other part of me still hopeful that she would. When she didn't answer, I remember telling myself, she must be busy, but she will call back. I know it sounds crazy. I knew grief affected your heart, but I was surprised how it affected my mind. Either way, I wasn't prepared for either. They say everyone grieves differently, and it's so true. The grieving process is individual to the person. I did not start grieving my mom's passing until the day after we had her celebration service and buried her. If you want to put the grieving process in a box, well, then you will be rudely awakened when grief says, what box? There is no such thing when it comes to grief. 
Grief for me has been messy, unpredictable, terrifying, has a mind of its own and hasn't allowed me to hide what I'm feeling. I have been in several public places when an overwhelming feeling of sadness would come and so with the unstoppable tears. I have been in public places and exploded with anger without warning to myself or to those around me. It has also brought an overwhelming amount of fear. The more I would let fear sit in, the more paranoid I felt. I was paranoid about everything in my mind was full of the worst possible what-ifs. The what-ifs attached to fear is no one's friend, and I learned this the hard way. My sanity seemed to grow more distant from me, and I did not have the strength to reconnect with it. I would wander through the night, sometimes in my car and a couple of times on foot. Not really sure why I did that, but it seemed like it would help in those moments. I just wanted to be away, away from what I was feeling and away from what had been done. I really wanted to get off the roller coaster of torture. As the days went on, it seemed to get worse and the ride of hopelessness, confusion and pain felt like it had just started. Just picture a black hole that only grows in darkness. And as it increases in different shades of darkness, it also makes hope, clarity, and peace seem distant. This ride, or life, just didn't feel worth it anymore. And even worse, this ride felt like there was never going to be an end. What inspired you to start the blog? Well, um, in the beginning of my grieving and just really, for me, writing was just very healing for me and mm-hmm. my own personal journals and stuff like that. And sometimes I would share it on Facebook or just, you know, post something. And I would have several people message me or comment on it, people I knew and people that I didn't know, mm-hmm. and say, like, thank you for being vulnerable or open and about it. And um, I just realized that I wasn't the only one that had these feelings, but for some reason... Like, we just aren't comfortable with being vulnerable about what's really going on in our hearts. So we yeah. rather walk around with them broken and hidden rather than exposed so that they can begin to be healed. And so I just figured, like, you know what, I'm going to write about this because I feel like we are missing out on amazing people because yeah. people are scared to be seen in their most vulnerable um, areas of life and where they've been broken, you know? Mm-hmm. so. Why do you think uh, people are so afraid to talk about grief or why people feel like they have to hide it? I I feel like there's a lot of bad like myths about grief or just even about being vulnerable or showing any type of pain and weakness. It's like, you know, you can't show this emotion. You can't, you know, cry or you need you like they want to like I said, I feel like people want to put it in boxes of like what grief is supposed to look like Mm. and you know, it's like, well, I grieved like this, so you need to be over it by this point because I was over it by this point. And I just feel like it's hard for people to accept different even yeah. when it comes to grief, you know? So, like, if if that person knows that people expect it to look a certain way, I mean, people don't like being re- rejected, especially when they're, you know, feeling a deep pain. Nobody needs to feel rejected and on top of that you know yeah so so I think it's just easier to hide yeah it's easier it's not better though Mm -hmm. but we've learned to do the easier things with a lot of this stuff yeah so where did you get the name blue bicycle blog um well basically it was really funny like even before I decided to launch a blog I got Somebody gave me a small journal and it had like a little blue bicycle on it. And then somebody gave me a coffee mug for my birthday, two different people, and they didn't even know um, that they were doing this. But they gave me a coffee mug with a blue bicycle on it. And then a couple of months later, when I decided to start the blog, I was just like, man, I wonder what my blog should be called and then blue bicycle just instantly came to me and I was like that's a weird name for a blog like why like why why would that be the name but then I looked up the color what the color blue represents Mm -hmm. and what the bicycle represents and like blue represents um healing and overcomer renewal freedom all these different things that I felt like was going on during this process and on my journey you know and bicycles um represent moving forward and a personal journey and um freedom as well so I just put the two together and I was just like yeah this is what it's gonna be because 
I feel like I want to encourage people through my story, but I don't want people to feel like theirs has to look exactly like mine. And that's why it's a bicycle for a personal journey. So I'm not saying everything that helps me is going to help other people that are grieving. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it, we are on our individual rides. So yeah. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to someone who is struggling with grief or depression? I would, I would say that it's always still so hard, even though I've been with it, grief and depression. I would say for them to allow themselves to have the courage to really feel all the emotions, even if they feel like they're going crazy and insane, even if they feel like, you know, they're not allowed to feel that way, to really feel it. Because when we have the ability to feel everything that we need to feel and fully feel it, like we're able to heal, you know, it's, we, it's okay if you feel crazy. It's okay if you feel like, you know, you're not going to make it even into the next moment. But also I would hope that that person has community around them, people that um, can be there with them. Cause that, I mean, that was a huge part in my journey and that's what part three in my blog is about. It's really about the community of people that mm-hmm. I had with me that were basically just, you know, um, believing and hoping for me even when I was just like no this is not gonna work you know what I mean we're not meant to do things like this on our own not at all so I definitely encourage them to have um people around them that they can that can grieve with them that will stand in the dark times with them because it's I don't I don't think I would be here if it wasn't for being surrounded by people who cared about me and who loved me and who were willing to fight for me when I was just like just over it yeah so um no lone rangers you know yeah in this thing people are like oh i like to do this on my own and all that kind of stuff but like grief just takes our minds and our hearts to a place that we we drift so far and so fast and and it's dangerous out there when you're when you're alone right so well that's why i think it's so great that you're having a blog and you're willing to talk about it Mm -hmm. because i mean like you said even if you have that group of people that's supporting you um, by the end of the day, you're alone at home, mm-hmm. and you feel like maybe the way that you're feeling isn't the way you're supposed to be mm-hmm. feeling, or that it's just ugly, and you don't want to mm-hmm. do it, and you want to shut it off. Yeah. And I think that uh, it, it's hard to talk about, and people don't like to talk about it, but I think it's so great that yeah. you are, and yeah. important that you are, and people mm-hmm. can relate to it, and and know that they're not, like, the only one. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So long term, where do you want to go with the blog? Like, what do you, what do you see for the future? Uh, writing it and putting it together, and long term, I'm. I just want to eventually be at a place where, obviously, I'm writing more consistently and stuff. Get some blogs out here in the year, but also I'm going to school to become a certified life coach. Mm. So I would like to do some speaking and um, traveling to encourage people to be to live the liberated life. You know, I use the hashtag liberated to be me because, mm-hmm. I mean, there's no freedom in fear. You know, there's no freedom in hiding pain. There's no freedom in, you know, not being able to, to heal. So, like, I want to inspire everybody to live the liberated life. You know, I, I know we have, like, all these hidden gems around us of these people who are just waiting to thrive but like it's always gonna stop of at where we're willing to you know go as far as having the courage to live so I definitely um want to incorporate my writing with my speaking more and stuff like that and just encouraging people at the heart of blue bicycle block it's just encouragement you know encouraging people to embrace their journey you know and to not get caught up on somebody else's and uh where we can learn to celebrate each other to keep going and to become the best that we need to be and also oh this is another key part about you know the name um bicycles represent not being in a hurry you know if you want to get somewhere fast you drive a car take a plane or something Mm -hmm. but if you really want to live in the moment and take it all in you ride a bicycle, and I think that we miss out on key moments on our personal journey because we were so in a hurry to get to the next thing, or yeah. to, you know what I mean, or other people's definitions of success. And it's just like, wait, we missed out on our journey because mm-hmm. we wanted our success to look like that, you know. So I, I really 
just want to like slow down in my life and really find out what life I'm meant to live. Yeah. So. Well, I think you're willing to be open to the pain and the grief Mm -hmm. on the flip side of that Mm -hmm. is that you can experience like joy in ways that other people who are shut off can't. Yeah. Because with the bicycle thing, I was just thinking like, yeah, if you're on a bicycle and it rains, you're going to get wet and be uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're on a bicycle and the sun is shining, people in their cars flying by aren't going to appreciate that and feel the warmth. Exactly. Yeah, because you can't, you can't, you're not going to feel everything you're meant to feel. Right. Like, exactly. That's a great way to put it. And so, yeah, I just, I, long term, I really want to do more writing and stuff. Uh, Eventually, maybe in a couple of years here, I'll get out a book or something like that. But I write, I try to write every day. Um, But as long as I'm encouraging people, you know, to, to live bravely and to smile more, to have joy I mean, on my grief journey, the people that have helped me the most are little kids because, you know, they are just the joy that they carry and um, the compassion and stuff. It just really helped me. And so I'm able to experience joy now, which sounds so crazy coming out of the grief, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I have way more joy now than even before when all this stuff happened, you know, and it's just like I have a gratitude for life that I didn't have before and I just have this different perspective of just like wow like we get to we get to live life you know life Mm -hmm. is not a burden so let's just go for it That is the show today. Thank you so much for listening and special thanks to Heidi Irvin and Dejanae Cole. If you want more information about either of these ladies, you can find it at storycreaturespodcast.tumblr.com. I have a link to the Black Holler website as well as Blue Bicycle Blog. And our next episode, Magic, is now open for submissions. You can submit through February 20th. Uh, Short story, essay, poem, play, comedy, um interpretive dance actually that wouldn't work but I'm pretty open to any genre style of writing or performance and I'd really like to get some more um people on board so um find information and updates on our Facebook page on Tumblr and uh, you can download and subscribe on iTunes now so thank you so much for listening and have a good one